And yet the next day the storm had gone and all it left was a fine red dust over everything. Over people's cars, over the gardens, over the streets. If anybody left a window open, it was all over their houses as well. This fine red dust was left over everything. And in many ways, I think the feminist storm of the 1960s and 70s, in many ways, the feminism storm that came in the 60s and 70s, without doubt, I believe, left a fine red dust over our city as well. And yet many of us have grown up in it, and we don't even see it. We just take it as the norm. See, in the 60s and the 70s, the women's liberation movement was alive and well. And in its most benign form, the women's liberation movement, the aim was to promote women's equality with men. And so if you were around then, which many of you weren't, but if you were, you will remember women burning their bras at Sydney University, picketing, great debates happening on TV between aggressive women and businessmen that didn't want a bar of it. And yet in its most benign sense, some really good things came out of that women's liberation movement. Women began over many years to be able to vote, to own property, to have bank accounts, to have unrestricted education, to sit on company boards, all good things which I think are right and to be commended and praised. They're in line with God's word. They're appropriate. And so it is most benign, the women's liberation movement caused some good things to happen. But there was a far more sinister side to what happened in the 60s and 70s as well, which wasn't just about equality with men to be grasped. It was about freedom and independence from men to be praised. And so girl power became introduced. Girls, it's all about us. We're better than men. They stink. They just play on Xbox all day. Anything they can do, we can not only do it, but we can do it better than them. Everything that's wrong with the world is primarily because of men. Girl power, let's stick together and do this. And that became popular and loud. And the red dust of feminism started to placard itself all over this city. To a way that now, for us that have grown up in it, we don't even really see it anymore. But what we do realize is that we've grown up and we now live in a society and a culture that is primarily androgynous and gender neutralized. There is no differences anymore. Apart from the sexual organs we have, there's no differences, right? And that's to be praised and commended in our society. So if two men want to have a homosexual relationship, great. Why not? Who are we to say that they shouldn't do that? Do women want to be lesbians? Sure, they should be praised. If they want to get married, well, who are we to say that they can't? I mean, it's only a gender issue. It's fine. If a young boy who's 11 years old decides in his mind that he feels like a girl, then who are we to not let him go into the girls' toilets? Because that's who he seems, seems to be. If a young girl decides that she wants to be a boy, then who are we to stop her from entering boys' soccer teams and boys' rugby teams? Because she feels like she should be a boy. And who are we to stop that? Who are we when we're on the bus as a man? Who are we anymore to offer a young lady a seat? 
Because once upon a time, that would have been applauded as gentlemanly. But now when you stand up and say, oh, would you like to sit down? So often that young lady looks back at you as if to say, who do you think I am? Do you think you're better than me? Do you think I'm weak? We live in an androgynous society. Gender neutral. And the red disc of feminism is everywhere, but people don't even perceive it anymore. They just think this is the way it has always been. In a way that it hasn't always been like this. Our grandparents didn't even arrive into a culture like we have today. It's happened in our lifetimes. And it's happened really quickly. And so for me, as I stand over the edge of this series, I do so with a degree of excitement, but also a degree of trepidation. Aware that we are flying to the headwind of culture during this series. But my friends, dive in. We must. And if we don't dive in on this topic, if we don't dive into what God has to say about manhood and womanhood, and we don't seek to understand it and embrace it, then there are incredibly great things at stake. Indeed, there is much at stake, which is why I'm so eager to do this series with you. I doubt at the end of this series anybody will be hailing me as king and carrying me aloft. I doubt that is going to be happening. But that is not my job. My job is to protect you. And our society is saying something very different to God's word. As a pastor, it's my job to represent God's word and help us. And there is so much at stake if we don't understand biblical manhood and womanhood and seek to embrace it. What's at stake? Well, first and foremost, if we don't understand and embrace biblical manhood and womanhood, fundamentally, the gospel is at stake. Christ and him crucified is at stake. You might be thinking, I think it's a bit over the top. What has this got to do with that? Everything. Because you see, if we begin to pick and choose which bits of the Bible we like and which we don't, if we begin to take bits out and decide, no, I don't like that, I'll just put, oh, I'll put all that under the cultural bracket. Then before you know it, from generation to generation to generation, we'll be putting the gospel under the cultural bracket as well. But that's not really valid today either. That was just what they believed 2,000 years ago. What's it got to do with us now? One man, Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of the United States, the third president of the United States, Well, Timothy George, a historian and theologian and dean of Beeston Divinity School, writes having gone to see Thomas Jefferson's home, his home called Monticello. This is what he very perceptively saw. He says, while touring his library, we were shown a copy of Thomas Jefferson's New Testament. The curator held it up to let us see how it was full of holes. Jefferson had gone through with a penknife, And cut out all of the references that offended him. All the verses about God's wrath, hell, judgment, and so forth. He continues. While no Bible-believing Christian would be so impudent as Jefferson by actually deleting a part of God's word. Listen. In reality, I believe we are all guilty of a similar offense when we deliberately ignore any portion of what God has revealed to us in Scripture. 
Isn't that well said? You know, I doubt that any of us here would actually, if I came to your house, show me a Bible that has holes in it. I doubt many of you are taking a Bible to a life group that has bits missing from it. And yet the moment we as Christians decide, well, I don't like that, tear that out. Don't like that, tear that out. Don't like that, tear that out. We're doing exactly the same thing as Thomas Jefferson did. We're no longer willing to have it as the whole counsel of God. We just want parts of it because there's only parts of it that today fits in with our culture. And so we so quickly as Christians go, oh no, that's just cultural. Is it? Is it all just cultural? The moment we start picking and choosing, we are in trouble. And 100, 200, 300 years ago, that was God's wrath and hell and judgment. But today, it is sexuality and manhood and womanhood. In the present, current climate of culture, it is manhood and womanhood that we can feel tempted, I believe, to just tear out and ignore. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3... Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, oh, they're just too awkward in the present climate, so let's just take them out. 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, they're just too difficult to ascertain in the present cultural climate, so let's just tear them out. Titus 2, Proverbs 31, the list goes on, reference after reference after reference to the way God has ordained men and women to be. Oh, too complicated in our society, let's just tear them out. But one day, it will be the gospel that we will tear out. Maybe not in our generation. You know, when we tear things out like biblical manhood and womanhood, we shoot ourselves in the foot, our kids in the leg, and our grandkids in the heart. Within two generations, things are gone. Because they decide, oh yeah, hell, wrath, no, I don't like that. Manhood, womanhood, sexuality, no, I don't like that. In fact, actually, don't really like the gospel either. So it starts to go. We must not and cannot, as Christians, tear things out of God's word, amen? We must hold to it as truth. And if we don't, the gospel's at stake. So if we don't understand and embrace what the Bible has to say about biblical manhood and womanhood, the very gospel ends up being at stake. Secondarily, a God-given blessings at stake. If we don't embrace it and understand it, then we're going to be missing out on a serious blessing from this word when it comes to how we operate as men and women before him. I mean, Psalm 1, one of my favorite psalms, we encounter a man who is truly blessed. He is supremely happy in all that he does. The actual word there is even in the plural. It's like supremely happiest's. He's just emphasizing the fact that this guy is so happy in all that he does. And the psalm explains to us that this man is truly happy because he delights in God's word and allows it to guide him in all areas of his life. So this man, he meditates day and night on this word, and as a fruit of that and as a result of that, he's blessed in all that he does because he listens to it, he reads it, he meditates on it, he applies it, and as he applies it, he's blessed. James 1 tells us exactly the same thing. In verses 19 through 25, James exhorts us to ensure that we not only be hearers of the word, that we not only sit and listen and understand it, but we be doers of the word. Why? Well, he tells us, 
because that man will be blessed in his doing. If we're not, we're just like a man who looks at himself in the mirror, he goes away and realizes, man, I look rough. Oh, well, never mind. It just gets on with his day. James is saying, you fool. This mirror of God's word is there for us, but we have to understand this is the mirror of life. And so where we see our face is distorted in it, we have to go away and make changes. Because it's in our doing, our application of this word, that we are blessed. Well, my friends, when it comes to biblical manhood and womanhood, it's so important to understand that God is the great creator and designer of it all, isn't he? It's him. Every creator, every architect, every engineer that has ever lived, every artist and carpenter that has ever lived in this earth has been given those gifts by the Lord. And as the pinnacle of his creation in Genesis 1 verse 26, he created man, male and female, he created them. He is the ultimate craftsman and designer and creator of all. And what he does in this book is he says, hey, listen, let me tell you how I made you. And let me tell you how this works. He's not asking us to allow society to tell us all what it should be done. He's telling us to look at my word. I'm the designer. I'll tell you how it's to be done. I'll tell you how this works. And I think I'm within my rights to tell you how it works. Why? Because I made you. I created you. I know how this will go well for you. He is the master creator of all, and he is the master author of this book. And yet, just like Psalm 1, we will only be blessed, we'll only be supremely happy if we look at it and we meditate on it and we go away and apply it. And it is so tempting and so commonplace for people to look at it and see it and then say, hmm, no, I don't think it works for us, but thanks anyway. I'm not offended by that, but I think you are greatly offending God by that. Because you're looking the creator in the eye and going, well, nah. No, I think I've got a better way. My way. But I love you. No, you don't. Because you're not bowing the knee to him. Well, we don't understand biblical manhood and womanhood We don't embrace it according to God's word. The gospel's at stake. Our God-given blessing is at stake. You know what else is at stake? God's glory is at stake. And I cannot emphasize this enough. One of the most incredible things about God, I believe, is that he's a triune God. He's a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's one in essence... But three in persons, right? One in essence, one God, equal in majesty and sovereignty and splendor and worth and dignity, but three in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one of the things you see as you study this text in verse 26, one of the things I love about it, which is not often brought attention to, is it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Us. It's the first time in the Bible we see all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in consultation with each other, discussing what shall we do now? Oh, I know. And as a Godhead, 
as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our Trinity, let's make man in our image. Well, how are we going to do that? Because we're one in essence, but three in persons. I know. Let's make him one in essence, but two in persons. Man, but male and female. All right? Let's do that. And yet in our society, when we believe the lie of the enemy and the lie of culture, what we are led to believe is equality equals identicality and sameness. So we're almost offended if anybody says that we might differ on anything else apart from our sexual organs. And yet I believe God has designed it specifically to be one in essence, but Two in persons, why? To reflect his glory back to him. We weren't made to be identical. We were made to be completely different. And it's as we play out those differences, we reflect God's glory back to him in his fullness. Isn't that incredible? That he would do that? That he would design it that way? Gavin Peacock in his wonderful book, The Grand Design, says it this way. He says, we are either male or female, not one singular sex or something in between, but binary sexes, male and female by creation. It is clear from Genesis 1 that God values both men and women the same. There is no superior sex, and both are created in his image and given a common mandate. But equality of personhood doesn't demand uniform sameness. Just like each player is equal, but fulfills a different role within a football team, God has designed our equality to be expressed differently in the way we relate to each other as men and women. The Bible explains that equality of value does not mean unlimited equality. For God purposely made distinctions between men and women that were not just biological, but are instead rooted in the very image of God, stamped on the soul of a man and woman. God wants to say something more about himself through the differences between the sexes. This flies in the face of our culture, which equates value and dignity with role and authority. It argues that the more authority you have, the more value you have. But that is just not true. It's not. Our society says the more authority you have, the more value you have. So we live evidently in Australia in a tall poppy syndrome. Anybody thinks they have authority? Great. Take them over the knees. Just bring them all down. Keep everybody level. Why? Because I don't want to have somebody have more value than me. But the Bible doesn't value things like that. The Bible says, you know what? I'm going to make man and woman equal in value and worth and dignity. But male and female, I'm going to make them. They're going to be different in role and function. And it's going to reflect my glory back to me in its fullness. So as I stand peering over the edge of this series, I feel like an 11-year-old again with my pajamas on. I'm excited for it. I think it will make a profound difference if we embrace it. But I have a degree of trepidation because the red dust of feminism is everywhere. 
So to, ta- to some, I will be speaking French throughout this series. But for all of us, this word is our God. Not me. Forget about me. But never forget about God. This is what dictates our lives. This is what we stand on. We must always stand on this. Owen oh, Strachan, who's the president of um, the CBMW, the Council, Biblical Council of Manhood and Womanhood, he says this, He says, some evangelicals may have worked strenuously to avoid the gender wars, but anyone who does not agree with the cultural revolution unfolding around us must know that such avoidance is no longer an option. I completely agree. Whether we want to face this matter or not, it has arrived on our doorstep. At both the societal and at personal level, we must have an answer to share and a gospel word to offer. Thankfully, in all these things, the scripture is sufficient. Praise God, it is. But not only sufficient. It is living and active, alive to the challenges we face, poised to pour delicious clarity into dwells drained of truth. Isn't that wonderful? It's poised and ready to pour delicious clarity into wells drained of truth. Our society is drained of truth. So what do we do? We come to church and we sit under God's word and it pours delicious clarity into our hearts and our souls so that we may understand the way God always ordained it to be. So for the next five weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. But just by way of introduction for the remainder of our time, I want us to look at the two biblical foundations of biblical manhood and womanhood. The two foundations of biblical manhood and womanhood. The two foundations that everything else comes from in the entire Bible, whether it be married, single, kids, or without, go to church or not, everything comes from these two foundations. And these two foundations of biblical manhood and womanhood are found right here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the beginning. Ray Alton Jr. says this about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He says, why go all the way back to the first three chapters of the Bible if our concern is with manhood and womanhood today? Well, because as Genesis 1 to 3 go, so go the whole biblical debate. One way or another, all the additional biblical texts on manhood and womanhood must be interpreted in a way that is consistent with these chapters. They lay the very foundation of biblical manhood and womanhood. And so they do. So go the debate on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So go the entire debate on biblical manhood and womanhood. We have to understand biblical manhood and womanhood, and so we have to understand in the beginning. And when we do that, two things became, become very clear. Number one, the first biblical foundation is that men and women are made equal in their value and worth and dignity before the Lord. And we must understand that. Male and female made with equal value and worth and dignity before the Lord. I mean, here in chapter 1, verse 26, 
We see God having made all the different animals. He's already done all the stuff by now. It's all going on. It's all good. But then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come together in consultation for the first time. And they start to discuss, what shall we do now? What shall we do now is the climax and crown of our creation. Here's what they do. Read it again with me. Pay attention to what you read. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's the unmistakable point that is being made here. Unmistakable point is that men and women are made equal in their value and dignity and worth before the Lord. It is unmistakable. It is loud. God in his grace is making us both together, male and female. He creates us both with the ability to shine his likeness back to him. Both made in the image of God, both made with equal value and worth and dignity to reflect the glory of God back to him. See, correctly understood, this verse and these verses leave no room for racism. Correctly understood, these verses completely, single-handedly remove racism from society. Because this teaches us that if you are a man or a woman, God made you. And he made you as his Godhead bearer. He gave the the, the ability to reflect his glory back to him. You were made in the very likeness of God, no matter what the color of your skin is. That's why racism is so abhorrent. Likewise, classism. The idea that some people are better than others. So if you're upper class, oh, you're a good guy. If you're a bogan, hmm, unfortunate. Yeah, would you mind sitting away from me? It's disgraceful. It is absolutely abhorrent because the lowest and poorest and most vilest person of all is still made as a very image bearer of God. Male and female, created by the Lord to reflect his glory back to him, to be made in his likeness and to rule the earth. It's likewise why these verses correctly understood leave no room for chauvinism and sexism. Leave no room for it. They leave no room to men to be degrading to women. As if you're just second-class Christians, second-class people, and you need to do as you're told. That is a disgrace and abhorrent before the Lord. But likewise, what is abhorrent is when you have a load of ladies going, Girl power, we're the best! No, no. You've been watching too much Spice Girls. You're not the best. We're equal. We're equal in value and worth and dignity before the Lord. God made us as man. Male and female, he created us. John John Piper, in his wonderful book, What's the Difference, says it this way. says, if it is true that manhood and womanhood are to complement rather than duplicate each other, and if it is true that the way God made us is good, then we should be very slow to gather a list of typical male weaknesses or a list of typical female weaknesses 
and draw a conclusion that is either of less that either is of less value than the other. No. Men and women are of equal value and dignity in the eyes of God. Both are created in the image of God and utterly unique in the universe. And so they are. Men and women made equal in value and worth and dignity, utterly unique in the universe and utterly made in the image of God. We see that placarded for us throughout Genesis chapter 1. But in Genesis chapter 2, we have the other biblical foundation of manhood and womanhood, the other biblical foundation of complementarianism, which isn't complement with an I, which means men and women just have to say, oh, you're so nice as a woman. Oh, you're so nice as a man. No, that's not what it is. Complementarianism is completeness. We complete one another. And in Genesis chapter 2, what we realize is that men and women... Although equal in value and worth and dignity, number two, men and women are made distinct and different in their roles. There's a difference. Equal in value and worth and dignity before the Lord without any doubt, but different and distinct in their roles. And so Genesis 1, we read and understand that there is no question that men and women are made equal in their value, worth, and dignity. But likewise, in Genesis 2, there's no question that men and women are made distinct and different in their roles. And so in Genesis chapter 2, we see right here that uh, the first couple are ever made, male and female. We encounter the first marriage relationship, and within that marriage relationship, we note there is a distinction and difference in their roles. Adam, as the male, was made and designed by God for headship and leadership. He was made by God, and as we'll see next week, six to seven times in one chapter, it's clear that he is the head. He is the leader. And Eve? as the female, is made to be his helper. And we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks' time as well. And I think one of the things that's happened to women, even in Christianity, is the word helper has been distorted as if to say, how pathetic is that? But many, many times in the Bible, God is called the helper of Israel. It's being distorted in our society in a way that is not in line with Scripture. But because of the way it's been distorted, even in Christianity, we go, I don't want that. Oh, listen, journey with me. Because when you see it biblically, you will want it. In Genesis chapter 2, we discover that although men and women are made equal in value and worth and dignity, they are made distinct and different in their roles. And I want you to know, if you are single here today, you don't have to be married to fully display biblical manhood and womanhood, Okay. What we'll discover as we journey through this series is the things that happen in Genesis 1 and 2 are the very things that Paul keeps going back to all the time, not only in marriage, but in singleness and church and distinctions in life as well. He pulls the same principles through in all of life. Jesus himself was single, and yet he fully displayed biblical masculinity throughout the entirety of his life. Never married. Don't have to be married to fully display biblical manhood and womanhood. Whether married or single, we do have to understand we're made equal in value and worth and dignity, but we are different in roles. 
We have different things to play. John Piper says it well. He says, when the Bible teaches that men and women fulfill different roles in relation to each other, judging men with a unique leadership role, it bases this differentiation not on temporary cultural norms, but on permanent facts of creation. This is seen in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 to 16, especially verses 8 to 9 of 14. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, especially 31 to 32. And 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, especially 13 through 14. In the Bible, differentiated roles for men and women are never traced back to the fall of man and woman into sin. Rather, the foundation of this differentiation is traced back to the way things were in Eden before sin warped our relationships. Listen to this. Differentiated roles were corrupted, not created by the fall. They were created by God. Isn't that wonderful? They were corrupted by the fall, make no mistake. But they were created by God in a way that he looked on and said, that is good. That will bring me glory and that will go well for them. They were corrupted by the fall, created by God, and yet we would by naive, naive at best and stupid at worst to think that the fall had little or no effect on our relationships. It had a profound effect on our relationships. Genesis chapter 3, Adam takes the forbidden fruit, he eats it. What happens? Sin comes into the world. Well, what's the consequences of sin? Well, as you examine Genesis 3, the main consequence is pain. It's going to be painful. And so for women, there's going to be pain in childbirth. Imagine if Adam had not eaten the forbidden fruit. You would have just gone upstairs, popped it out and gone, look what I found. It just wouldn't have even hurt. It would have been amazing. I know I'm being mischievous, but I couldn't help myself. It's just, it, it probably, it wouldn't have even hurt. It would have just arrived. Oh, the baby's arrived. Good. Shall we go out for dinner? I mean, it just wouldn't have been a problem. I do apologize on Adam's behalf. But if you had been there, you would have eaten the forbidden fruit as well. For men, part of the consequence of the fall is we now have pain in work. That's why sometimes, particularly when you speak to young men, and they just say, oh, work is so hard. I just feel God calling me to have a year off. No, he's not. He's calling you to work. But part of the reason why it's hard is because of the fall of mankind. So it hurts. There's going to be times when work's just hard. Yeah. Thank goodness you're not a woman giving birth, though. So just suck it up, princess, and go to work. <laughs> Pain in childbirth. Pain in work. And for both man and woman, there would be pain in their relationships. Pain in their cross-gender relationships. And the way they would operate before and into each other. And in particular, pain within the marriage relationship. And so in Genesis 3.16, we see God telling him what's going to happen. He explains to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband. And yet he shall rule over you. You know, I remember reading that as a young man and thinking, that is great. Your desire shall be for your husband. Here I am. You know, she's just going to desire me. And, but unfortunately, that's not the way it means. Your desire, those words desire and rule in the original language are both negative words. They're bad things. 
They're things you didn't want. So as part of the fall for women and for a wife, there will be a desire to control, desire to manipulate, an unwillingness to really naturally follow him, but I'm happy to follow him. I'm happy for him to be my head as long as I'm his neck because I want to make sure I know where we're going. There will be a desire to control that something that's going to happen in all of our lives. And for the men, there will be a desire to rule. They understand the way it was always made. Naturally, they understand the way it was made in manhood and womanhood. There's something in a man that understands our role. But then we encounter our wife and we realize this isn't going to be easy. So the temptation is to dominate. This is my role. Who do you think you are? You're meant to follow me. Everybody understands that naturally. And yet for many men, growingly, because they don't think that's even a possibility, and because they grew up in a home where that was definitely not displayed, instead of dominating, they just abdicate. They do exactly what Adam did in the garden. Eve ate the forbidden fruit first. Sin didn't come into the world through her. It came through Adam. Why is that? Well, we'll look at that next week. Because he was the head. But she is the, the forbidden fruit for it, but nothing happens. And when you pay attention, it says an Adam was standing right by her. <laughs> God had told him, this is the one thing you must not do in the garden. She's doing it, and he's just going, oh, yes, dear. Yes, it looks very tasty. He's abdicating right there and then. And that temptation is still in man to this day. Try and dominate, can't dominate, abdicate. I don't want the stinking role anyway. Girl power, go for it, it's great, carry on. I'll just be over here. And so there's pain in our relationships. Pain in childbirth, pain in work, pain in our relationships, pain in marriage. It can be difficult. And yet as Christians... We're new creations, aren't we? We're not part of this culture. The Bible's clear that our culture is part of the heavenly citizenship. We're new creations. And so it's just as Mr. Piper tells us, differential roles were corrupted and not created by the fall. They were created by God. And so my prayer then throughout this series is that we would go back to discover what is it that God created? What is it that he made? And how did he make it to work? And I want us to take all these pages and I want us to blow on them. I want us to blow the red dust of feminism off them and see them for what they actually are. We've grown up in a very different world to what this was written into. But this is the book of life. This will set us free. This was written by our creator who knows us, who knows our frame and knows the way it was always meant to work for his glory. And so it's my prayer throughout this series that we would blow off the red dust of feminism and understand and embrace all that the Bible has to tell us on manhood and womanhood. Why? Because the gospel's at stake. We can't start taking bits out of the Bible. And our blessing is at stake. And as a pastor who sincerely loves you, I don't want you to get ripped off by this culture as if this is a better way. It's my call to lift this up and say, no, this is the better way. 
And God's glory is at stake. A Godhead who's one in essence, but three in persons. That we're called to reflect in all his glory. And so I want us to blow the red dust of our Bibles and understand it and embrace it by his grace and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, your word is wonderfully clear. Lord, our society has lied to us as if there is no clarity on this issue. And sadly, so often our Christian subculture has lied to us as if to say, yes, there's clearly no difference. When there is. Equal in value and worth and dignity, but different in roles. Why? For your glory. To reflect back to you the glory of the Trinity. And so, Lord, would you guard our hearts and guard our minds throughout this series? Lord, would you help us to understand your word? Would you help us to do it with humility and grace, with eyes wide open, with the Bible wide open before us, aware that you are a big God above us? And help us to listen to your voice through your word above anybody else's. Change us, Lord. Keep us. Teach us. And would it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.